we celebrate Christmas because God plays the long game. The long game. He isn't making things up as he goes. He has a plan for history. He has a plan for this world. He has a plan for you. God makes promises and God keeps his promises. He is a faithful God. Now next, uh, in this week we start a new short series on the birth of Jesus, uh, specifically from the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 1 and 2. Next week for Christmas Eve morning, we'll be talking about the verses specifically on the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, but for today, we're going to start at the beginning part of Matthew, Matthew chapters uh, chapter 1, 1 through 17, and I invite you to turn to it, and I hope that as you turn to it and realize what we're reading for today, that uh, you are not disappointed when you realize it's a genealogy. It's a list of names and uh, ancestors of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when people hit the genealogies, they think, oh, couldn't we have just skipped this? Why is this here? Matthew obviously put this here for a reason. Matthew put this in the gospel for very important reasons and started off his gospel this way, uh, presenting things about Jesus Christ, highlighting things that are important, giving his credentials. And it is my hope that as we look at this this morning and we think of what is Matthew trying to do with God's direction uh, in this inspired word, even though this is a genealogy, what is he teaching us here. So, as we read this, we're going to think, why did Matthew put this here? Is there anything we're supposed to notice? So, let's read this together, Matthew 1, 1 through 17. <clears throat> so, it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King of David, the king. Then it goes on. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. And Jerome, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of 
Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right, so there's many things we could look at here and, and kind of notice. Uh, for one, mostly it's uh, men that are listed, and that's who um, ancestors usually passed on to, although there were four women that are listed, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and this shows the important place of uh, just women, but also most of these are Gentiles or women that had some kind of backstory, but notice they make it into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Other things pertaining to just the way I want to go with this message this morning that we notice, notice in this one it doesn't go all the way back way to the beginning. It goes to Abraham, but it doesn't go back even further to all the way back to, to Adam the first human being. It's different than in Luke's gospel when he gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In his, he traces it all the way back to Adam, really emphasizing the humanity of Jesus Christ. Some of the different gospels, and we have four, and we, we say gospels, of course, the gospel message is that Christ came and died for sinners, uh, but also Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called gospels. They're these uh, biblical portraits of Jesus Christ. And when you paint a portrait, you're trying to capture the subject in a certain way. And we have four because each complement each other. So whereas in the Gospel of Luke, it really um, sometimes emphasizes that the genuine humanity of Jesus Christ. But we're going to see in Matthew's Gospel, which is largely written to Jewish people, there's something else that he is emphasizing. And that he's emphasizing uh, something having to do with kingship that is in this gospel. So, yep, one thing we notice, it doesn't go all the way back to Adam. It goes back to, uh, to Abraham. And we also notice it really emphasizes, look at even at verse 1 again. It emphasizes the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it emphasizes that he is the descendant of David and the descendant of Abraham. Now, when it says son of David, son of Abraham, uh, we can't think, well, which is he? I mean, is, he, is, is his father David? Is his father Abraham? Uh, no, when we read the word son here, it means he's the descendant of. It doesn't have to mean just the next generation. So he is descended from uh, Abraham, and he's descended from David. And it seems like this is something important that Matthew really wants us to get. Also, we notice that it groups Jesus' ancestors into 14 generations, or excuse me, in, um, into groups of 14 generations. So if we look at it with a uh, kind of a timeline here, we see that the way he starts this with Abraham, and we know in the biblical account, it, you, you could look at the book of Genesis and trace it even further back, uh, but it starts with Abraham, um, he lived around uh, circa, that's what the C stands for, around 2000 B.C. 
so B.C. before Christ, so 2,000 years before him. And then, as we look at this, it talks about 14 generations from Abraham to David. David lived about 1,000 years later, about 1,000 years before Christ. And then 14 generations from David to the, the captivity in Babylon, or the exile, uh, the departure to Babylon. When uh, the kingdom of, of Judah was, uh, was captured, uh, people were taken away. Uh, many were killed and slaughtered and taken away to, uh, to Babylon. And there was 70 years of captivity that actually starts before 586. But 586 B.C. is when the Babylonians completely destroyed uh, the city of Jerusalem. I mean, they, they leveled it. Uh, it was awful. It was brutal. It was horrible. And that's just kind of an anchor date that I put there for uh, part of the Babylonian captivity. And then, of course, so there's three different sections between four of these. Uh, think of them as kind of links between you know, four different fence posts. Uh, finally, up to Jesus Christ, Jesus who is, is called the Christ. And, of course, he's right at uh, the pivot in history between what is uh, B.C. and uh, A.D. Um, historically, maybe born maybe about 5 B.C. Uh, because the people that picked what year, you know, A.D. would start, did that kind of years later and may have gotten it off a little bit. Um, but kind of that, that hinge in the middle of history. So I think we, we think of this and we realize, okay, something important is going on here. There's something strategic that Matthew is trying to instill in us to get us to realize by structuring it this way. And so again, I think of it, there's like 14 links between these different posts. And when I look at this, I think he's really emphasizing Abraham. He's emphasizing David. Also emphasizing the departure to, to Babylon. One thing that we do need to realize is that uh, even though it gives has like 14 kind of links, you know, chain links between, you know, the different posts. Uh, these are 14 that, that are given, but we know from looking at uh, the Old Testament records uh, that actually Matthew's skipping over some. And that's not necessarily, he's not being, I don't think he's being sneaky in doing this. He knows he's writing to an audience that knows their Old Testament, but he's trying to craft this in a different way uh, to give at least uh, 14 of these um, descendants uh, between these different, these different anchors. So, for example, three names have been omitted be in verse 8 between Jeroam and Uzziah. There's three kings that are there that he doesn't mention, he kind of passes over. They also happen to be three extremely wicked kings, and so they don't get uh, their names listed in here. And remember, this isn't an error because uh, son can literally mean the way that's being used here as descendant. Father means um, ancestor, okay? So um, Jesus, you know, his, uh, the Jews would sometimes talk about Father Abraham. That doesn't mean that he was their direct father, but he was their, their ancestor. But I think David was doing this to make a point, to have these he, listing of, of 14 between these significant figures in Old Testament uh, history. Some have also pointed out that in Hebrew, uh, that different letters are given different numerical values. And the name David, 
if you add up the numerical values for the letters in his name is 14, and that might be also at least uh, subliminally what Matthew is trying to get across as he develops this. So with this in mind, what I'd like to do is to take a look at some of these different, uh, not to talk about every link in the chain, but kind of the fence posts between the links. To talk about Abraham, David, and Babylon, because also what we will see is that at these points, there are important covenants that God makes through Abraham, through David, and a, a really important covenant that he also makes at the time of the Babylonian captivity as well. So, and I think what this is going to do, is it's going to help us to see this long game that God is doing. That Jesus Christ isn't just randomly coming into this world, but he's coming into this world as a fulfillment of prophecy, a fulfillment of God's big game plan and what God is doing from the beginning. So this is just going to be an overview. I mean, we could have long messages and series about each of these covenants, but I hope this is at least a, a nice, helpful overview to you. So first we're going to talk about Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham, and we're going to look at it from Genesis 12, 1 through 7. It's actually listed in a few different places because God reiterates it in especially Genesis 15, Genesis 17. But Abraham is the most important person in the book of Genesis. That he is called out of the land of um, Ur, which is today around Babylon. And he was um, not a worshiper of God, but God called him out and he responded to this. And he brought him to the land of Canaan, which we know today as the land of Israel. And he made this covenant to him. So let's read together. This is, uh, we read Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is also Abraham, he changes his name later on. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. All right. As I mentioned, the Abrahamic covenant's a big deal. And it is reiterated and more details are given in a few places, especially 15 and 17. And we're just giving a summary here. But think of the text of this. Uh, we've read up to verse 7. Well, if we look at this, people point out there's basically three uh, main parts to this covenant, things that God is promising 
to Abraham and through him to his descendants as well. Uh, there's personal, national, and also universal promises, aspects of this covenant. And the first, we'll say, is, is personal. That Abraham would be the father of a great nation. He said he would make his name great, that he would be the father of a great nation. Of course, at this point, he's an older man already. He doesn't have any children. Uh, but God is promising him that he is going to have descendants upon descendants that become a great nation. And we read the book of Genesis, you see how that unfolds miraculously from the Lord. And you keep reading the Old Testament, you see that there's so many times when they could have been so easily wiped out and when there are people that are hostile to him and his descendants. But God preserved them and protected them. And eventually they did become a great nation. They come uh, after the time in Egypt back into uh, the land of, of Canaan. And uh, God keeps his work. And the Jewish people are still a, a people group to this day. A lot of others, they're wiped off the face of the earth. But God has protected and preserved them. Notice it says also that I will bless you, make your name great, those who bless you. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse. That God will be with the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, in a very special way, especially through his, his son Isaac, who the promises would uh, be transmitted. Nationally, his offspring would be given the land of Canaan, which we know as the land of Israel. So we see this here. There are other passages and scripture that talk about the boundaries and give precise boundaries in Numbers 34, 1 through 12. We won't read that, uh, but it gives very precise boundaries. And one thing that we have to notice is that as you look through the Old Testament, there's times when they did control and occupy much of this land. And under the, the kingdom with David, they conquered quite a bit of it. But there's no point in the Old Testament where they controlled all of the land that God had promised to them. And so this is a promise that has been, in a way, partially fulfilled, but not completely and literally fulfilled. And I believe that fulfillment is something that is still future, that God will fulfill for the Jewish people one day. And finally, universal. It says, in you all of the families on earth shall be blessed. And this wasn't true of Abraham personally, but it is true of one of Abraham's descendants that we can think of who are about to celebrate him coming into this world, that through him it is very true that all of the nations of the earth are blessed. The point I want to make about this covenant that's important is that it is an unconditional covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. It's unconditional. It can't be changed. It can't be transferred. In one of the other places where it talks about this covenant, in Genesis 15, it gives this description. Uh, God reiterates this, and he has uh, Abraham take some animals and sacrifice them and cut them in half. Uh, in the Old Testament, to make a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. And this seems weird to us, but this is how they would do it, is you have these sacrifices and you would um, <clears throat> cut them in half and then walk through them. And basically, it was like a pledge saying, like, woe to me if I do not fulfill my end of this agreement. But then when you read that, you see that there's this flaming pot that symbolizes the Lord's presence, and the Lord passes through this, uh, but not Abraham. Basically saying that this one is not a conditional covenant like some are, 
but an unconditional one, that God is saying, this is all on me, okay, that no matter what, I am going to fulfill my promises to you. Before we move on, especially with things going on in the world today, we think of Abraham and other places make it clear that his pro- these promises are transmitted through his son Isaac, who then was transmitted to the, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the Hebrews, the Jewish people. And one thing that can't escape our notice is just the consistent hatred of mankind towards the Jewish people. You see that in the Old Testament so many times where uh, people are against them trying to destroy them. You can see that all the way through the past 2,000 years of history, times when people have been against them, uh, persecution, slander, driving them uh, from their homes, all kinds of different things. And of course we think about World War II and six million Jews that were killed in the Holocaust. And of course, right now, we're living in a time that has been uh, the biggest atrocity since World War II against the Jewish people. That on October 7 of this year, terrorists from Hamas, in a sneak attack, killed more than 1,200 Israelis. Think about how many that is. I mean, that is this congregation several times over. And to realize that most of those, 800 plus, were civilians. These are not soldiers, these are not police officers. Many were women, children, babies that they just attacked as terrorists and and murdered. And at least 240 or more taken hostage as well, and the situation is still ongoing. We think, why is there such a consistent hatred of the Jews? And even people in today's world that pride themselves on being you know, tolerant and, and, and liberal and accepting and not wanting any you know, hate speech, that some of these are just chanting things on college campuses uh, with slogans that are basically calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. And recently we've had presidents of major universities call before Congress that could not give a clear denunciation of this and say that that kind of speech calling for the genocide of the Jewish people would be an actionable offense. There's something going on beneath the surface. I think ultimately we realize this hatred of the Jewish people is from Satan. I believe that. I believe that ultimately it's because God, or that Satan is working through people and it's because one, Satan knows that God loves the Jewish people. And so Satan is going to attack whatever it is that God loves. God has given his special favor for whatever reason. Hey, grace is grace. It doesn't, you don't have to have a reason. God didn't have to have a reason to give his grace, but he did. And he set his affection especially on the Jewish people. And so Satan hates them. In the Old Testament especially, I think it's because God had promised that the Messiah would come through the Jewish people. So Satan thought if we can exterminate the Jewish people, there goes God's plan for redemption. There's no Christ if we kill all the Jews. And I think even today, third reason is because God still has promises to the Jewish people that he intends to fulfill. That he has not uh, shaken them off. That he has not um, utterly rejected the Jewish people. 
How do I know that God has not utterly rejected the Jewish people? Because we can read in Romans 11, verse 1, Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he's talking with the Jewish people at this point. And he says, by no means. And he goes on in Romans 11 to talk about that, yeah, there's been a hardening that's come upon Israel. Most of them right now have not embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Some have, but not all. But it says, until the full, a, hardness, a hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So I think we can look forward to a time in the end times when there will be a national revival among ethnic Israel and that they will turn their hearts to the king that came for them that most rejected the first time around, but they will embrace. So believe God is not done with his people and God has not broken off this covenant he has made with Abraham. So that was the first of these kind of fence posts. So personal, national, and then as you said, universal, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We look at King David, and King David is also one that God made a covenant with him. God made a covenant with King David. See this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can turn to these. Or if your eyesight is good enough, I have them printed for you on the back of the uh, outline. I think it's important to realize that the Gospel of Matthew really focuses on the phrase, Son of David for Jesus. It's used here, but it's also used eight other places in Matthew's Gospel, just hammering this as a theme, that Jesus is the Son of David, and therefore the fulfillment, I'm going to say, of uh, the covenant that God made to David. And the Jews knew that the Messiah, that's what Christ means. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ means Messiah. He's this promised one, the promised Savior for Israel. But they knew that the Messiah would be the son of David, one of his descendants. And sometimes he even used son of David as a title for the Messiah. We can see this in Matthew 22, 41 through 42 from the, the Pharisees. And they're also, at least they knew their Old Testament. They had a lot of things that were wrong, but they knew their Bibles. It says, now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And Jesus goes on to that, and we can't get into what he does there, but we see that they very clearly understood that the Messiah is the son of David. So now we also see, it seems like this is what a big thing that Matthew is doing in this genealogy showing that this Jesus is son of David, giving these credentials, this history. And this is important because of the Davidic covenant, the covenant that was given to David. So let's take a look at this. 2 Samuel 7, and I'm going to start here with verse 8. So God is speaking this to David through the prophet Nathan. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and for following the sheep that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne in his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Notice again, this is another unconditional covenant. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So we have here the Davidic covenant. Put parts of it on the screen here for you. And there's at least five elements that we can see that are part of this covenant that is given. That David's name would be great. And this is something that was fulfilled in David's own lifetime, as well as throughout history. Uh, the, the star of Israel, it's the star of, um, a star of David. I mean, he is, a, his name has been made great. It says that David would have rest. Um, and he had a lot of conflict in his life, but he also had seasons of rest. David would have a house. And it also says in here that David's son would build a house for the Lord, but it also says that David, that God for David would make, would give him a house. Think of like, um, you know, the house of King David, basically meaning that his descendants would rule, okay? A ruling dynasty, and his line would never be cut off. Like his descendants would all, they would never be completely cut off or extinguished from this world. You know, a lot of times when one ruler takes over from another in a kingdom, you know, they, they kill all the sons, they kill all the family members because they try to completely cut off that dynasty. And there's times where it came close in the Old Testament, but God never allowed that to happen fully. David would have a throne, meaning the right to rule Israel would always belong to David's line, and he would have a kingdom. And I think this includes an actual land area to rule over as well as other aspects of what a, what a kingdom is. We think of this just briefly. We see that there are some of these things that have been fulfilled, but there are some of these that are yet to be fulfilled in their entirety. As far as having a throne, having a kingdom. Because he had someone on the throne basically up until the point of uh, the Babylonian exile and the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, but then kind of after that, uh, it didn't rule quite in the same way. And so Jesus is being presented that this is the return of the king. This is the one that has been 
uh, almost you know, cut off, but as um, the king has come back, that he is, he's been preserved, his line has been preserved all these years. Fulfillment, we see that Jesus is the Messiah, is the son of David. We see that Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is an important thing in the Gospel of Matthew, and this is why we sing in our Christmas songs, Born is the King of Israel. And Jesus will reign on David's throne, I believe literally, physically on earth when he returns again and sets up his kingdom on earth here for a thousand years. That it has not yet had the literal fulfillment that God will faithfully um, enact in due time. But before we move on, I just want to say, for application for you and I, it's one thing to say Jesus is, uh, to saying born is the king of Israel, to acknowledge that he is king. The Bible also says not only is he king of Israel, but he is king of kings and lord of lords. What about for you and I? Have you acknowledged his kingship over your life? Have you acknowledged that he is the ruler? Uh, So many times people don't even come to Christ because they don't recognize that God has authority over their lives, whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not. And part of coming to Jesus is recognizing this Jesus is king in a lot of different ways, uh, but he has the right to rule our lives. And the good thing, the wise thing, the smart thing, the beautiful thing is for each of us not to wait to some different time, but to bow the knee to him now, accepting him as Savior and accepting him uh, at the same time for who he is, and that is rightful king over our lives. Finally, the last section, these fence posts that we see for Christ, it's the time of the Babylonian exile. I'm going to give you this point. In the time of the Babylonian exile, God promised the new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. And this is recorded in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I'll read it here. I'll have part of it on the screen. It doesn't all fit. This is really, really important. And so I think that it is not a coincidence that these different fence posts between the, the 14 generations in Matthew are also these times when there are these really, really important covenants that are given. Uh, we think of the new covenant here, and I'll let you turn to Jeremiah 31. Uh, it's a new covenant because there was an old covenant. And when it talks about the old covenant here, it does not mean the covenant of Abraham. It does not mean the Davidic covenant, but it means one that we haven't talked about today, which is the one that God gave through Moses. And that was a different kind of covenant. These covenants that we've been looking at so far are unconditional, meaning they're going to happen no matter what, whereas in the covenant with Moses, there were conditions to that. God promised them blessings if they obeyed, but curses if they disobeyed. And the people decided, yes, we will accept the conditions of, uh, these, uh, of, of this covenant they gave through Moses. Um, that would be kind of halfway th- between the period where Abraham and David is on the timeline. You know, Exodus, uh, Numbers, or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy uh, is where it talks about this and, and gives the rules that are part of that covenant. 
But the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. And we see that it did not actually in itself give salvation. Ultimately, what it did is it taught people their sin as they realized they couldn't keep this. They didn't have the, they weren't morally good enough to keep this. And it pointed them towards their need for a Savior, their need for the Messiah that would come. But now, at this time where the Babylonians are there, uh, there's destruction, God tells, says through Jeremiah that there's going to be a new covenant. He says, verse 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. See, as was Moses, he brought them out of Egypt. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And then verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each person teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There's at least three parts to this awesome covenant that God makes with the Jewish people, but also that we benefit in, that we are part of through Christ. God will put his law into the hearts of his people. That the covenant with Moses was written on tablets of stone. For the men that have been in 2 Corinthians for Bible study, we've seen this. The comparison between the old and the new. That that old covenant was written on tablets of stone, but this new one is going to be written on our hearts. And part of that is God giving a new heart that God in this new covenant era is going to give his Holy Spirit, gives the internal strength that we have uh, to, to live for him, to have changed affections, changed loves, a change that happens in your heart, a heart surgery that happens at salvation. It's one of the benefits. It also says that all those in the new covenant would know the Lord personally. You'd personally know the Lord. That's why it said if you're in the New Covenant, you don't have to say to each other, know the Lord, because if you're in the New Covenant, it means you already do. So this is not a mixed covenant where you have believers and unbelievers. It is, if you're in the New Covenant, you are a believer. You are a saved person. And I'll say also that's why, reason why we believe that uh, baptism makes sense for believers. Being a an ordinance related to the, the new covenant. The new covenant is for believers. And then the thing that is most precious of all, the forgiveness of sin. It's the promise of forgiveness of sin through this covenant. And this is put in effect through Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ, the night that he was betrayed, and we read this every time we take the Lord's Supper. It says, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's going to be the sacrifice that puts it into effect. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That Jesus' sacrifice came to fulfill this, that to enact, to uh, make the new covenant a, a thing. And that's why you and I can have forgiveness of sins. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. You measure yourself against God's law, his standard, you fall short. I fall short, we all do. If you measure yourself against other people, you may think, I'm a pretty good person. But you measure yourself against God's holiness, we are sinners all. And the only thing that can save anyone is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. His death in our place. This is the good news, people. This is why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus came to save sinners. And that's who we are. And if you recognize you're a sinner, then hallelujah, please realize Christmas is about you because Jesus came to save you from hell. And you can be part of this covenant grafted into this that Jesus gave his life for. And you don't have to work for it. Jesus did everything that needs to be done by dying on the cross for you, being raised from the dead and his perfect life. And you just turn to him in repentant faith, trusting that Jesus Christ is all that you will ever need. And receive the greatest Christmas gift of all, salvation in Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. All of this, these genealogies, this is not a waste of time. Jesus came to fulfill this. This is Jesus playing out God's long plan. This is Jesus coming to save you. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, we give you hearts full of praise. We bow the knee to Jesus Christ, our King. We thank you, Lord God, that you make promises and that you keep your promises, that you fulfill your promises. And Lord, these covenants, you have fulfilled so much of it already. They are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ. Fulfilled either at his first coming or fulfilled completely when Jesus returns once again, the second time, uh, to, to triumph and to reign forever, Lord. And in the meantime, let us worship you on bended knee. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that is a sinner, because we are sinners. May they turn to you, King Jesus, Savior Jesus, Lord Jesus, and trust that your blood was shed as a substitute for them to do what they could never do and to wash away their sin completely and forever. You keep your promises, Lord God, and we praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we pray. Amen.